This is the Royal Tea Podcast, spilling it with queens, kings, and everything in between. The Royal Tea teaches and empowers young, queer people of color through personal testimonies and connections in our local community of Phoenix and beyond. We serve, sip, and spill the latest tea so you can take action to care for yourself and those around you. Welcome to the Royalty Podcast. My name is Jareth and I'm here today with Michael. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing well today. How are you doing? Um, you know, it's a bit windy um, and that ruins my hair and my makeup, but I'm otherwise doing fine. <laughs> you don't have to see it on the podcast. That's great. Yes. I think it works out that way. Yes. Um, so, Michael, tell us about yourself. Like, what's your name? Um, obviously, your first name we know. Um, if you want to give any more information, that's fine. Um, your age, gender identity, and sexual orientation. Sure. Um, so, my name is Michael Chang. Um, I am pretty much a native of Phoenix. I was born in Taiwan, but we moved here when I was three. Um, I am going to be 35 pretty soon here. And um, I am, I identify as Taiwanese American and gay. Oh, so you're pretty much dead. So why are we having had this conversation? 35 <laughs> over the hill. Thank you. No, I just turned, yes. <laughs> I just, I just turned 35 myself. So I know how it is to be uh, an older person. Um, so those are all great, you know, uh, introspective pieces of your identity. Of course, we can't really tell who you are over the microphone. Um, so, how did you find out about the T-Phoenix and what is your involvement with the T-Phoenix at this time? Um, so you asked me to join you on the podcast several months ago uh, when the, the election season was happening. And so we talked through some voter registration things. Um, I've always admired what the T-Phoenix is doing. Um, I always thought, going back to your point about me being dead, I thought I was too old for the group. Um, but I am interested in getting a bit more involved as the pandemic um, starts clearing up um, because I really appreciate what you do for the community. Well, thank you. Yes, we always try to be, you know, more inclusive, even if your age or your gender identity or your sexual orientation don't really like, quote unquote, match our mission. We're always trying to be inclusive. So that's great to hear um, that we kind of wrangled you back from the dead to come hang out with us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, if you would like to share, you know, to, to your extent um, or what extent you feel comfortable, what do you do for work right now? Sure. Um, so I just, well, let's see, how should I go about this? So my background is in nonprofits um, in fundraising specifically. And I did that for nine years at two large nonprofits here in the Valley. And then I decided I wanted to make a career transition into more uh, project management and operations. So two years ago, I um, had an opportunity at a startup company come up. So I did that for about a year. Um, but that company has closed since then due to the pandemic. Um, so last year I started my consulting business and have been doing project management and operations consulting um, until I started uh, recently working full-time um, with another startup that does education and consulting for um, businesses uh, owned by women and people of color to help them grow their companies work so you're you're helping people uh, at least like the most recent thing that you're doing it sounds like you're helping people that are typically um i guess more like stereotypically like more likely to struggle with business um women people of color um other 
minorities, probably also including, you know, LGBTQ plus people, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And and how does that, how does that, you know, really help you or, um, well, I guess, yeah, help you to navigate your own personal identity? Like, do you feel like you're helping out the community or like, tell us more about that, how it affects you personally? Because I know for me, my work affects me personally as well on like multitudes of levels. Yeah. Um, so I was attracted to this company because of the mission. You know, we are all about um, t- trying to um, right some wrongs um, in society, the inequities that we have in society through economic empowerment. Um, so definitely we need to address the various um, justice issues in society from multiple lenses. Um, I don't see myself as 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 uh, uh, as a as good of a advocate or someone who can really get involved in politics but i thought you know i've always been in business and i can um, help through economic empowerment um, because that is a very important piece um, to equality as well so um, that's what i'm trying to do now yeah, hundred percent makes sense. I mean, of course, like income inequality and opportunity inequality. You know, they always say like, "Well, we're an equal opportunity employer," but you know how you're paid or how you're treated or your lack of promotion can all obviously be based on things like race and um, and also things like queer identity or gender gender identity as well. So mm-hmm. that that brings us to like the next point. Um, either in your work or in your personal life, um, how did your br- upbringing? and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what that looks like, um, impact your identities. And maybe perhaps they were considered conflicting, quote-unquote, identities. Um, How do you feel like those things affected you personally? Yeah, um, so lots to unpack here. I think because not only did I grow up in a bicultural um, household, um, because, you know, we were trying to fit in, to the American side, but we were still very traditional in our Taiwanese um, roots as well. Um, it was hard for all of us to navigate that. Um, my family uh, still is a, is a multi-generational family. Um, so my dad is the oldest son. I grew up uh, with my grandparents in the house as well. Um, and my grandma is still living with them. And so it was, you know, definitely good a lot in a lot of ways in terms of all the culture that we got um, from our grandparents and our parents. Um, But, you know, we were also growing up as American children, um, you know, in the public school system and learning about, you know, different kinds of cultures, uh, American culture specifically, and wanting some elements of that in our own lives as well. And so, you know, it was hard for us as the children to get all these expectations from the older generations. And then it was harder for the older generations to let go of the traditions and, you know, the the various, um, you know, the traumas that they had as well. Um, You know, my my grandparents grew up um, before World War II um, in Taiwan and lived through that with, you know, all the... um, geopolitical unrest um, in the region. And so, you know, they had a lot of things that they wanted to do in order to protect us and make sure that they were happy. But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, their their worldviews were a bit more narrow because of that, because they were focused on much more basic needs, you know, like the physical needs. And so the emotional connections weren't always able to be met 
uh, because of these cultures that we were straddling all the time. Right. Yeah. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of uh, of actualization, right? The fact that we need those basic needs to be met first, and then kind of finding and, and fine-tuning our identities can be done after that. You know, then we could go into more, maybe what is considered superficial, but more... Um, unnecessary quote-unquote um parts of our cultures and parts of ourselves um Mm -hmm. and that's and that's such a struggle i obviously have grown up in a very similar situation um being like part native latinx specifically like mexican and then part white and like okay i'm identify with the latinx and and the native because i am visually more that um you know physically i present more that but uh, I have grown up with and um, identified with a white American culture. And so those two mm-hmm. conflicting, almost conflicting ide- ideas and um, cultures have been really impactful on myself growing up. And I, I can't imagine, I'm sure it's similar to you. I wanted to ask, you, so you talk about your dad is the oldest son. You're also the oldest son? That's correct. And so a lot of those expectations get placed on me as yeah, well. Yeah. And so how generationally, how do you think it's changed from your dad to you? And then also like, what are some of those things? Cause just for listeners that aren't aware of the Asian culture in which you grew up specifically, but just Asian cultures in general, what does the oldest male, what are they responsible for? Like, what do they hold? Like, what do they have a burden of carrying? Yeah, so just with um, the the older children in general, whether it is um, men or women, there is an expectation to take care of the parents. Um, So in my dad's case, you know, it was always expected for him to have his parents live with him um, once they got older and that we, we would all be in the same family, like in the same household. And, um, they, they would take care of the grandkids and then they also would be taken care of as they, you know, got older and, um, you know, lived out, um, the rest of their lives. And so I, I don't feel that pressure from my own parents, but I know that my grandma would, um, you know, really like for that to happen for me, uh, with my parents as well. But, um, you know, that's something I'm still working through in my own mind. Um, but there is definitely that expectation and it starts from the very beginning, you know, always having those kinds of comments, um, said to you, even when you are a very little kid, not even understanding how to even take care of yourself. Um, but that's ingrained from a very young age. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's intense. I I'm glad that there's a little bit of a, from what you said, um, it sounds like there's a little bit of a removal of the expectation. Like it's not on you as heavily by your parents as your parents had put on them. Um, uh, but still, you know, of course, culturally, we kind of carry those remnants of ourselves, um, our cultures through the generations. And so I can imagine that could be mm-hmm. difficult. Right. Cause it comes with, um, you know, for me, based off of my own personality and my connection to my family, there is a certain um, a certain sense of obligation that maybe some other Americans um, who don't come from this kind of culture might feel with their own parents. Um, so there's just that extra mental and emotional stress that um, one has to work through when 
you're in such right. a culture. Such a, a lot of uh, emotional labor, for sure. Um, kind of related to that, how do you feel... I know there's this big um, pattern that we see in assimilation between cultures that have immigrated to the United States versus cultures that have been here for quite a while. You know, people now that were once upon a time immigrants like Irish or German or Italian people uh, who were treated as lesser than are now kind of like the quote unquote older school um, or the older generations of America. And now, you know, Asians and Latinx people and um, I'm trying to think there are other cultures that are coming here or a lot of a lot of I mean, I guess like Western and Eastern Asian, like Syria versus, you know, Chinese or Japanese um, or other Asian cultures are immigrating here more now. A lot of them, of course, under um, like not the greatest circumstances, right? They're fleeing. Uh, they're they're trying to get away from persecution in their own countries or, or, you know, hate or poverty or whatever it might be. But how do you see um, your specifically family um, assimilating into American culture? What things have they kept more traditional? Sure. Yeah, so my family definitely came here to chase this the American dream, you know, to have more opportunity and to um, give us children greater access to education and job opportunities, which is, you know, definitely um, very noble of them. You know, it's not, I can't imagine what it's like to have to immigrate. And, um, you know, they certainly didn't speak any English when they moved here. And my parents um, learned and they, they definitely um, do fine. But, you know, my grandparents never learned. And so our or their world was just their family, you know, so it was very insular. Um, and so the expectations uh, stayed very limited and the kinds of um, different ideas and people and concepts that they were exposed to was also very limited as well. Um, so... Could you repeat your question? Right. So I was just asking, um, you know, coming here, obviously the American dream is a huge thing for immigrants. What have they, what have mm -hmm. they removed from their cultural identity? Like what have they tried to assimilate to in what ways has your family? And maybe it's different for each individual, like grandparents versus your parents versus yourself. How have you differentiated right. that assimilation and what things have you kind of kept over the generations uh, from your original, you know, like your cultural background? Sure. So um, I think the more um, like events or ritual based activities have been maintained. Um, so my family is Buddhist and so we still celebrate Buddhist holidays as well as other um, culturally you know, Taiwanese or Chinese um, uh, holidays, such as Lunar New Year or um, the Moon Festival. Those are things that we do together as a family, which is definitely very nice. Um, the the sense of, of connectedness that we have a family is also very nice because um, I think... I think it's maybe even still kind of unusual nowadays for people to know their first cousins as well as um, my family does. So I grew up with, uh, so my dad has a younger brother and sister. And, you know, so I have two sets of cousins as well, first cousins. And we all grew up um, in the valley, um, you know, less than 
15 minutes apart uh, from each other. And so we saw all, all of us, all 20 of us um, for the holidays, um, birthdays, um, religious celebrations, um, anything like that. So um, yeah, so that is there as well. And then other things that we've tried to adapt toward. Um, I'm not sure, actually, because it seems like because my family is pretty insular that there is a lot that we still do for ourselves and by ourselves and don't pay attention as much to the rest of American society. Um, at home, the the Taiwanese news and shows are always on. And so, you know, my, my family, my parents and grandparents, they don't watch American news. Um, so everything is through the Taiwanese media lens, um, which has its pros and cons, of course. Um, but I still think of them as very Taiwanese and not very American. Yeah. Well, so I, I'm not sure... Oh, just real quick. I'm not sure how, how similar that is uh, for other families. Um, you know, certainly I think one of the things that I've learned being Asian American is that there are so many different um, sub Asian cultures um, that, you know, we can't possibly represent them all in the term Asian. And so um, there's still so much to learn. And even within Taiwanese culture, for example, some families are just a lot more, um, either emotionally expressive, um, open-minded, um, or even just simply more Americanized than mine. Um, and it all just really depends on individual families. Yeah, that's, that's true. I know, um, one of the things that we had to do when I was taking, um, language classes at a Arizona state, um, was that we actually had to learn about kind of, uh, first, second and third generation immigrants and what that looked like. And I mean, there's obviously stereotypes and generalizations that are made within the context of those, uh, those studies. But, um, what I found was that, typically it seems like there's the first generation that just, you know, came to America and they're trying so hard to assimilate and they, and they typically try to learn the language right away. Or if they're too old, like, you know, too old, meaning, you know, they're bringing their children to really have a better opportunity, then their children will be the ones that learn the language. Um, and so that second generation, the first generation, they kind of do a lot of change. And then from, from second to third generation, typically there's a loss of language. So, um, so, so let's say, for example, your grandparents, they were the first, they were the first, right? You said the first generation to come. Well, so we're all technically first generation because we all moved here together. Oh, okay. Okay. Got um, it. Right. right. So, okay. So there wasn't like a generation that had children here yet. That would be your generation if you decided to have children. Okay. Right. So my, my oldest cousin, she's the only one in my generation who's had a child. Um, there is kind of a, a split in my generation. So I was the last one out of 11 grandchildren to be born in Taiwan. Um and so sociologically, I'm not sure how to distinguish um, the, the first four of us versus the latter seven of us. Um, but yeah, there, there's, um, there are definitely some, some challenges that I faced being first generation. You know, some 
access to things uh, with with education in particular that were limited because I had to be naturalized, uh, you know, in comparison to my my younger siblings and my younger cousins who you know were recognized as Americans from the day that they were born. Right. That's such an interesting perspective because, I mean, obviously, the, the again, the studies are very much based on stereotypical or ideological systems in which, you know, two people who are maybe younger people that are still able to have a family, they immigrate. And when they immigrate, then they have their own family here in America. And so that second mm-hmm. generation is really like the first American born. Um, and then you know, then they assume that those children will also have children and that that third generation would really be like the generation that kind of defines, you know, whatever the culture is that they came from before, plus their Americanism. And I just think that's so interesting that, you know, you all are different generations, but you all came together at the same time. So you're, you're younger and possibly more progressive and possibly more accepting and open to things American wise, or just, you know, culturally, um, as opposed to, you know, sometimes in the older generations, we see that cultures um, or cultural shifts aren't as easily accepted. So when you say things like, you know, they, they still very much keep it, you know, ear said insular, very much not interested in going to other cultures or uh, identifying with other cultures. Yes, they moved here for the American dream, but they're still very much Taiwanese. Um, that is interesting and fascinating. And I think that a lot of a lot of groups are tending to do that a little bit more now than they did, you know, in the 17, 1800s when immigration was huge from other European countries. Right. Yeah. And I, I understand it. You know, it is so different um, because, you know, they're from Asia. It's it's so different from American culture and society. And again, I, I really don't know what it's like. And um, I think they were pretty limited in terms of other friend connections that they might have had here when they moved, uh, when we moved. Um, So I can understand that. But then certainly for my grandparents, because they never learned English, um, then the simple fact that there's a language barrier will keep them from, um, you know, exploring as much of American culture. That brings up an interesting question, and I'm kind of sidetracking for where we were going to go, but um, that limits them. Like you said, it limits them to exposure to other American things that are typically more, you know, English-based. How does that either... I guess, I guess the wording is like, how does that keep you connected? You and your parents who, you know, if, if everybody kind of in those two generations know English, but your grandparents do not, you know, obviously you kind of have to be there as like people that are translating for them. How does that keep you tied to them? Does that feel like a burden or does it feel like a blessing or somewhere in between? Yeah, it's definitely both. Um, you know, with, with my family, we're not all the most emotionally expressive and um, and open with one another. And so I think if we had a stronger emotional connection, um, then that would help break things down. So I, you know, my siblings and I grew up in the household where the grandparents were. So we had to, you know, speak a bit of Taiwanese and Mandarin Chinese. Um, in order to have any communication with them. Um, I do kind of feel bad for my cousins who don't have as much of that linguistic connection um, to my grandma um, because they 
simply don't use it um, as much. And I think, um, you know, there is a lot of patience all around, in particular for my, my, for my grandma, because, <laughs> because there are some, some weird accents and weird vocabulary that we use because we don't know how else to express what we're trying to say to her. Um, but I think, I think it's a blessing and a curse because, you know, we have the option, which is definitely nice. We have the option of going back and forth between two cultures and, and multiple languages. Um, but then that also requires more work, right? The, the work of having to, having to pick, um, having to um, communicate differently and di like whether it's linguistically or culturally. Um, but I don't think I would have it any other way. You know, of course, I wish I had dedicated more time to um, learning the languages so that I could speak more fluently. But I like having had the option to, you know, pick from the uh, Taiwanese cultural elements that I wanted to incorporate and keep in my own life, and also to be able to have, you know, direct exposure to American culture and then pick and choose um, the elements that I wanted to incorporate into my life from that as well. Um, so I, I don't know if it, you know, it definitely took a while to get here. Um, there was a lot of internalized racism growing up, as well as a lot of um, there was also a lot of just, you know, fear as well as resentment towards some of my, um, American peers in school because I was bullied for being Asian, mm -hmm. um, and, and then bullied to a lesser extent for being gay. Um, and so just as, you know, I, similar, similar to how I had the option to, um, pick and utilize different elements from these two cultures, I also had to be subjected um, kind of unwillingly to the, the negative effects that uh, the cultures can bring about as well. Hey, royalty listeners, this is Eli from the Tea Phoenix. And today I'm coming to you with some information about a new service being offered by the Southwest Center. In addition to teletesting, the center is now offering drive-through testing. You can get a free 90-second HIV test from the comfort and safety of your own car. Just complete the health registration at register.healthavana.com SWC. Again, that's register.healthvana.com SWC. Then head into our covered parking lot at the center on Tuesdays or Thursdays from 10 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Park in one of the marked parking spots and call the number on the sign, and a tester will ask you a few questions over the phone, then come out to your car and administer your test. Staff will be in full PPE for your safety, so we ask the same kindness in return. Please wear a mask during testing, and again, no need to fill out the insurance portion of your health registration, as testing at the Southwest Center is always free. If you have any questions about STIs, HIV, sexual and relationship health, or any of the great services that the Southwest Center has to offer, you can access Southwest Center online by logging into GoToMeeting under access code 610-357-445. Again, that's 610-357-445. And a qualified clinical tester can answer all your questions and get you to connect to some of our awesome services. 
This service is offered in English, Spanish, and ASL from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. Yeah, that's, I mean, I really enjoy that you were able to pick and choose what you get to keep because there are so many um, immigrants to America that really kind of either try to push, like, okay, you're going to be totally American, like just assimilate, do what you can do to get by, to try to, you know, successfully reach that American dream. And then there's also the opposite, which I said is more of a thing that we're seeing with newer generations coming to America that uh, they want to be super almost like in their own bubble of like, if we're the only Syrian family here, then we're the only Syrian family here, but we're going to do all of our traditional religious stuff, all of our traditional cultural stuff. We're going to eat all the same foods. We're only going to speak in our language, uh, those kinds of things. And so it's really nice to hear on a personal level that you were able to, you know, to, to stick to um, having some choice really like to stick to your own personal choice of, okay, I want to keep these things from my Asian background, but I also want to assimilate or, or become more American in these ways. And that's, I think it makes people a little bit more well-rounded, but it also allows people to have appreciation for their, their past generations and their, and their family uh, heritage. Right. That brings me to kind of the next question, which is you, and you mentioned it a little bit, um, that obviously navigating being an Asian gay man is difficult, a difficult task in society and within your, your American and Asian cultures. Um, first, can you kind of talk about what was the expectation or what was the cultural significance of being gay within your family? Like, was it allowed? Was it not allowed? You know, what would people say about it or would they just not talk about it? Talk about how your family um, kind of, impressed upon you what it was like to be gay and if it was okay yeah uh definitely not any kind of open expression about how okay it might be to be queer (laughs) certainly did not grow up with that um i am very happy for taiwan that it is so progressive in terms of lgbt inclusion um but you know, and I don't know how it developed sociologically in the last few decades um, since we left Taiwan. But because we left, you know, I'm guessing at the time in in the early 90s, um, it still wasn't very progressive in that sense. And so those are the cultural um, cultural beliefs that my family immigrated over with. And because we stayed pretty insular, um, and they also didn't watch the progress, the progression of LGBT inclusion in American society. Then they kind of just stayed pretty narrow-minded in that sense, I believe. So I, I did come out to my family later in my twenties, um, and initially, you know, it was definitely uh, due to some fear of you know, like a lot of upset. Um, but then later on, um, I, I just felt like, you know, even if, if I'm okay dealing with any, um, negative feelings that they might try to throw at me. Um, I have a younger brother who is 15 years younger and I, I don't know whether he's queer or not, but regardless, I thought that they would, um, put some pressure on him. And so, you know, since I just saw them once a week for dinner, um, I didn't want them to, um, have to, or I, or since I only saw them once a week, 
um, I didn't think that I would have to deal with any negativity as much as um, my brother would if they were to start pressuring him. So I put it off for a little bit longer to just, just to um, be sure so that he could, you know, be, be a little bit older and have um, his own way of dealing with that if that came up. Um, so my parents took it well enough, I suppose, you know, certainly not, you know, busting out the rainbow flags and, um, asking me when they could join me at pride next, <laughs> but <laughs> I think things have improved. Um, and you know, it's just a bit at a time there, are, there are just other, um, communication things that we needed to work through anyway. So it wasn't the gay thing itself that was, um, holding us back. Um, I'm still not out to my grandma. She's the only person in my life I am not out to. And um, I have some other examples um, that show me that she is still very narrow-minded and she can't let anything go. And so this is not to discourage anyone from taking that chance because who knows, maybe she really would be fine with it if she... um, you know, had the opportunity to learn about it. But at this point, you know, it's not, I don't feel like it's a huge deal because I don't feel a particular need to tell her about my love life or lack of love. And she's not on the grinder for you being like, oh, this one looks good, you know? (laughs) No, no. Though, Though I do, I do wish sometimes that I could tell her and then instead of pressuring, um, me to find a Taiwanese wife, she would say, oh, let me call back to your aunties in Taiwan and let me find a husband <laughs> for you. You know, I'm, I'm pretty open yeah. to that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that's right. Um, so I, I know that with some other families, there there's much more acceptance and with others, there's, you know, even more or even less acceptance, uh, which is unfortunate. So I think just with my particular family, because um, we are so traditional and, you know, there are some individual dynamics going on. For example, like my dad not challenging um, his parents very much on things. Um, That kept the traditions, which was good, but that also, you know, kept some pretty oppressive expectations on the younger generations as well right yeah i mean i can't obviously there like you said with pretty much everything there's some give and some take and you've had some room for being yourself and you've had some you know obviously like either um resistance or you know just not necessarily seeing the benefit i know i mean i don't know Tons and tons of people that I've gotten super close to as far as their um, personal cultural background, like how they deal with their parents or their grandparents. But I notice that when it's a cultural family that's usually immigrated here or, you know, just a really strong background in their culture uh, that they've kept going for generations, even while in America, it seems that there's kind of this like, we don't talk about it. And when we do talk about it, it's like, okay, thanks for telling me, don't talk about it anymore. <laughs> and then, and then right, you know, just kind yeah. of like just negating it. Um, and a lot of times that's because they're not necessarily being exposed to it 24-7. So like, for example, if you brought over, you know, a boyfriend or a husband or something like that, like, how do you think that they would react now? You know, what, or do you think that would be too much to, to ask of them? And you just wouldn't. 
Um, I think I would build up to it. You know, I know that it takes time, um, just as it takes time for us as as queer people to um, accept ourselves. I know that it's hard for people close to us, especially our parents and family members, to accept us, accept those parts of ourselves too. Um, but you know, I think that, or I would hope that they would treat him as well as they've treated um, other partners of my siblings and my cousins, um, you know, because they, you know, for, for the straight members of the family, they are very open to having partners integrated because, you know, that's the, that's the traditional path and that's the path to having grandchildren. And we just want more children and grandchildren. You know, that's my family's main focus. More labor. <laughs> we need more labor to work at our whatever, you know, whatever their American dream factory is or, or, you know, place of business, whatever it is. That's how I felt like uh, for a long time too, like, especially my dad's side of the family, right? He's like, we just need to have as many children as possible so we can just have them all work at the, at the local factory. <laughs> where you know oh um, yeah because it's such an american like an american thing to do um almost like from you know 17 1800s you know when not unfortunately not all the children survived you just try to you know make as many as possible mm -hmm. to to be more hands-on with the work at, on the farm agriculturally exactly. or wherever um so this is this is really interesting because i kind of brought up another point so are most of your like cousins or aunts or uncles or anybody that has um that's a heteronormative person have they brought home people of another cultural identity like white people or like african-american or like any other cultural you know nationality that's different than your own and how how was that accepted or or not accepted by other members of the family yeah, there are some very distinct um, differences in how partners brought into the family have been treated. Um, so, for example, both of my sisters have brought in um, white partners, and you know there was no question whatsoever. Um, and you know, to be frank, they did not turn out to be the best of relationships, uh, which we could tell, you know, from the front end. Um, and then my oldest cousin, um, you know, the one who has the only great grandchild in the family, um, she is married to an African American and, you know, they, they've been together since college and, you know, they are doing fine, you know, just, just as, just as well as any other couple. Um, but because of, um, you know, my grandma's racism, um, she, I think the last time we talked about my, my, um, I call him my nephew, uh, my nephews, um, she still commented on his skin color and I just wanted to, you know, like talk to her very sternly. Right. Calm down, royal family. Um, <laughs> the child, the child's right. color does not matter. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, I have some la limited language ability and, and also, you know, there's just such a wall in terms of being open to the idea that, you know, people who have darker skin are just as equal as anyone else, you know? So she's not the kind of person to go out and, and persecute, but, you know, she, she wants, she builds up walls around 
the lives of of her family um, as an attempt to to protect and save face and to sure. you know follow these really strict guidelines and project a certain image of what she thinks that her family should be like. Interesting. Yeah, and I'm sure that making that person, let's say your next partner was a gay black man, I'm sure then adding that layer of, you know, it's not heteronormative and it's also not, you know, quote unquote okay within my racial purview. Both of those things combined are probably, you know, going to create more chaos or more disdain for that particular partner that's coming in. And that's just unfortunate, but I mean, it's interesting and and good to know. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't talk about is that um, there is a high amount of prejudice within even other minority cultures. For sure. Um, So uh, going back to your identity and, you know, identifying as a gay Asian man, Asian American, um, how do all of those kind of intersecting identities affect you? You know, like your work, your social life, your family dynamic, on a daily basis? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, to, to summarize it really simply, I think I do, if I think about it um, a bit, it probably is pretty compartmentalized. You know, so my closest friends are mostly straight couples. Um, you know, so we've been friends since high school. And there just weren't that many queer people, um, out queer people back then to be friends with anyway, you know, myself not being out. And, and so I've made more queer friends and I'm someone who prefers one-on-one interactions and friendships anyway. So a lot of my friends don't really overlap with one another. Um, So when I have gay man specific issues, I'll go to my gay man friends. And then if it's, you know, other, other broader LGBT issues, then I have my broader LGBT group of friends um, I can go connect with. And then, you know, work friends and friends from volunteering in the community. Um, so, yeah, usually compartmentalization is not always good. So I'll have to think about that some more and see if, if that's something I need to work on. Yeah. Um, but it's just been kind of out of necessity because, um, I think, you know, with, with any minority group or with any group that is, um, you know, dealing with oppression, um, there's a lot of being rendered invisible anyway. And so in the, in case, in the case of my identity, people do not know how to talk about you know, LGBT issues, um, nor do they know how to talk about Asian American issues. Um, so for the most part, um, in my life, I, I don't really get to talk about or have those parts of my identity be seen or represented. Um, and so I do have to seek out other relationships and spaces in order to be able to let those parts of myself out. Yeah. I, I, I hear two things that you're saying and let me know if I'm wrong. It sounds like you're compartmentalizing uh, because it's easier to go to, okay, like this is a gay issue. So I'm going to go to my gay friends. This is a, you know, a work issue. I'll go to my work friends or, or whatever you segregate your different parts of your life. But of course, 
as with anybody, the different parts of your life still intersect. And so when that happens, um, it sounds like you're introspective for sure. It sounds like you rely a lot on yourself to make some decisions. Um, and that if you can't find that yourself within yourself, that you go and seek other resources, because I agree with you, um, being LGBTQ plus and a minority of some sort, uh, racial minority or ethnicity, um, or nationality, even all of those can be, uh, really tricky because yes, there's a lot of, um, erasure and invisibility of the kind of those two overlapping sections. Right, exactly. And, and I just wish that people had a bit more curiosity to get to know those different parts of, of one another, you know, whether we are super close or, or if it is a newer acquaintance, you know, so for example, you know, I don't know very much about women's issues or, um, issues related to being a mother, for example, but one of my close friends, she had a baby two years ago. And so I try to learn more about what it's like to go through motherhood specifically, because that is very different from fatherhood um, with, you know, the, the amount of misogyny that is still prevalent throughout humanity. Um, and I, I think it's fun anyway, you know, it's not like a, any kind of emotional labor for me to tap into that curiosity as long as I can do that in a respectful and safe space. I really do want to learn from other people's experiences too. And, and so I, I am a little, um, I just wonder, you know, why that's so hard to come by. Right. I think you and I on a personal level have connected for such a long time for many reasons we like poop jokes uh queer wow you're gonna out uh, me on your yeah, podcast i just will uh, <laughs> but there's lots of reasons why we connect but i think one of the biggest things is that we're both like very open honest willing to answer questions that people have kind of people and so we open ourselves up to be like listen i understand i'm weird and strange and queer and i have all these multitudes of levels but like please ask me questions. So then that way you could learn from my experience and, and grow as a person from my experience, because what we're seeing lately is that um, there's not an, a lot of people that do that. There's not a lot of people that ask questions. Um, and when they do, maybe mm -hmm. it's like tone deaf, maybe that, you know, maybe they come at it from like a, well, wait, but why are you this way? And, you know, it's like, okay, don't ask it in that way. Come from a, an understanding perspective and I will answer your questions. Um, but because it's happening so much, there's such a clash of uh, a lack of information and people tend to get defensive when that happens that we're seeing more and more mm -hmm. that people are deciding to say like, well, you know what, it's called Google and you could go ask Mr. Jeeves over there. Um, and so I, I really like this balance of both of who we are. We say, you know, we have the opportunity to teach and we might not, you know, I'm an educator by profession. You're, you're not, but like, I certainly see that things that you do are very educator related and that you're open to that. And we both want other people to be open to that because in that way, I think we could harmonize a little bit better with other parts of humanity. I for sure see that that way. Right, exactly. Because at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we have such different experiences and that's part of the fun of life. 
And um, so being able to learn from one another, I think, is critical, not only for the, the betterment of, of our lives as, as human beings, but also for the fulfillment that we can feel on an individual basis. Um, but I think because communication skills are not, you know, really talked about and, and nurtured, there is naturally a lot of defensiveness on either side, you know, on both the side of the asker, as well as the person being asked, you know, like, you know, why on the one hand, why are you asking me this question in such an invasive way? And then on the other hand, well, why are you shooting me down? Like, I don't know anything about this. I don't even know how to ask it. And you're just, you know, like calling me a racist automatically because I didn't know how to phrase the term. You know, so I, I definitely understand that there needs to be balance there as well, where, you know, we can't rely on like a single person to answer all the questions for a minority group all the time. Um, but I also going back to your point of just directing people to Google, um, I do think that they still would read or take in information through that lens that. Um, unless they really know how to critically think, might still limit um, the the message that that group would want for them. You know, so if if we do have the energy, I do encourage um, people to take those questions and to help educate one another because we all have things to learn from one, one another. You know, so at this particular time, you know, we're talking about. Um, an Asian immigrant's perspective. Um, but, you know, you have also been sharing information about what it's like coming from, you know, your Mexican Latinx heritage as well. And we can ask some questions, you know, whether on this podcast or after and learn from one another um, equally. Exactly. Yep. And that, and that's the whole point of these kinds of, of these kinds of podcasts. Um, well, I'm noticing the time. And my time is limited, and I apologize for that. But I do have just like one more question to kind of wrap up this section, and then we'll we'll bring you back because we need to have a part two about just generally being Asian in America today, uh, since it hasn't changed all that much, um, and maybe some things are even worse or, or different uh, from a perspective of uh, an Asian immigrant in America, but. I wanted to ask, you know, kind of we talked about all these different parts of maybe your quote unquote conflicting identities or the identities that seem to be at odds with one another. And obviously, as an Asian man in a gay culture, especially here in the Phoenix metro area, which tends to be a little bit more conservative um, in, in a lot of ways, not just politically. What have been your struggles? Do you have like a story or two that you might be able to tell us in the next couple of minutes that – Give us some perspective on being a gay Asian man and, and how it's difficult in the larger, you know, gay community, especially here in Phoenix. Yeah, so um, there was definitely the internalized racism growing up, you know, Asian men in particular, whether it's um, straight Asian men or queer Asian men are not seen as attractive um, and there's a lot more history than I'll go into here with that. Um, but dealing with that, you know, the majority of people, of individual people in the Phoenix area are, are white. And so that definitely skewed my 
my perspective on what was attractive. Um, and, you know, there are such issues within the queer community as well. Um, we are certainly not, um, you know, immune to racism um, toward any particular group. And so um, there was a lot of that to uh, work through growing up. Um, and then, you know, as, a, as an adult and dating and things like that. And I'm glad that, um, you know, just with, with staying open-minded or having people challenge me and, and helping me open my mind um, and then just uh, meeting different people um, for, you know, uh, at community events or dating um, that, you know, that fortunately is not something that I have to deal with anymore, you know, the internalized and other racism, um, because I think it's just so, so sad to limit yourself based off of something that doesn't matter whatsoever. Um, so internalized racism is a big piece. And I think that it still can be for a lot of people from, from various um, backgrounds. Um, I haven't specifically experienced, you know, sexual racism from the community, um, but that's not to say that it's not very apparent out there. Um, you know, the whole no fats, no femmes, no Asians thing is is very prominent and very obvious um, in the community um, across the country. Um, and so even if I haven't experienced it directly, knowing that it's out there is still very discouraging. Um, and it's not just discouraging for myself, but again, it's discouraging for, for to be a member of this community that um, is limiting itself in that way. Right. Well, I, I mean, I know that you and I have had conversations and I don't remember any very specific um you know, stories where you kind of experience that very blatant racism while dating. But I do know that cons a consistent um, theme that comes up for you, whether, you know, I don't think, I mean, it definitely it's nothing that you can control. It's really on the people that are looking at you on dating apps or, or whatnot, that, you know, there seems to be interest and then you meet in person and then all of a sudden there's not, there's a lack of spark. There's a lack of interest. And I've noticed that you've said that quite a bit. And I wonder to what extent that may be racism playing a part, you know, cause obviously they can see your picture and you're not like putting, you know, like Zac Efron up there. It's just you, but you know, maybe wow. when they get in person, there's something that shifts. I don't know. What do you What do you think about that? Do you think that that could possibly be motivated by racism? That kind of prejudice. Um, I'm guessing that. Well, so I don't know if it's how how direct it is. I think that you know, with with any kind of issue, it's going to be multifaceted anyway. And so yeah. when we're talking about race, there are so many layers to that even. So it could be a physical attraction to the different features that I might have or, you know, someone of Asian descent might have. Um, but then it could also be the expect the expectations for how one behaves. So, you know, I think in the community there, there's a lot of toxicity around masculinity and femininity and things like that so there might be some um some issues that we face just based on how those initial interactions go 
And if that's mask enough or femme enough for someone based off of, you know, their, their preconceived notions of how someone should behave. Right. Yeah. I mean, definitely there's so many layers. There are so many variables of what makes a person. And then of course, what makes a person attracted to another person. Um, and so I don't think, yeah, we would ever be able to peel all the layers of that onion, but I'm just, you know, just putting it out there, just curious that it's possible mm -hmm. that that is one of those many layers um, that, that you could be, you know, affected by, but maybe not even really, um, attribute to racism or prejudice um, on a smaller scale. Right. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it's, it's not to talk about, or it's not to force any kind of attraction or to say that anyone is entitled to having anyone else attracted to them. It's more just, I would encourage people for their own sake um, to challenge themselves um, in how they view attraction, you know, because it is very constructed um, by media and social media right. and and things like racism and um, inequities. You know, like capitalism definitely affects how we if you, how we view attractiveness as well. Um, so, just for our own sake, in terms of you know, getting the most out of life and um, being the most free to explore our own identities and being open to other people's identities as well. Um, I definitely encourage us to be open-minded in that sense. Wow. What a great, it's been a great hour with you pretty much um, having conversations about just you and your perspective and how, you know, you've been affected by not only your culture, but the American culture and, you know, your, your multitude of identities that make you as a complex and lovable being as you are. So thank you for being here with us today. Um, I do want to just mention that hopefully we'll have you back soon for talking about being Asian in America today so that we can have a more conversation about just the larger sense of what it's like to be an, a, an Asian immigrant in America today with the things that we're seeing recently in, in the news. So thank you so much for being here. Any last minute thoughts, words you want to say before we let you go? Uh, yeah, I just want to thank you as well for giving me the space to share my story. Um, I think that the tea does great things and really um, helps elevate uh, queer people in our community, especially those of color. Um, so I, I know that we've talked about how you know, there's just not that much representation for um, AAPI people in the queer community. And so it's nice to be able to share this and, um, and hopefully, you know, if there are some other queer AAPI people out there in Phoenix, um, know that we are here. We just, um, you know, need to find each other and support one another. Mm -hmm.